Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 55 of the Bible Reading Podcast today. Oh, hang on a second. Let me turn my radio down. There we go. Sorry about that. Today's big Bible question, is taking communion or the Lord's Supper a dangerous thing? So happy Monday, my friends. May the Lord bless you and carry you through this sometimes grim day. Mondays aren't normally our favorites, are they? Today's Bible readings include Exodus chapter 7, wherein Pharaoh's magicians perform some pretty amazing feats, which is a topic that we will tackle in episode number 56 tomorrow. Job 24 continues Job's epic speech, rant, lament. I'm really not sure how to classify his third speech. It's got some elements of all of those things in it, and it's something else. In Luke 10, Jesus sends out not 12, but 72 disciples, and also tells us the amazing parable of the Good Samaritan, one of the most well-known stories in all of human history. Our focus question comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is an interesting and honestly fairly controversial chapter. The first part concerns head coverings, and the second part contains instructions, exhortations, and warnings about the Lord's Supper, or communion, or the Eucharist, or the breaking of the bread. Now, those four phrases all refer to the same ordinance in the Christian church. The word Eucharist, if you aren't familiar with it, comes from the Greek word for thanksgiving, and it's found in 1 Corinthians 11.34, which we'll read today. Maybe the next time we go through 1 Corinthians, we're going to cover the issue of head coverings, because we are going to read through it again this year, and I think that'll be kind of an interesting discussion, because it's one of the very few passages in the Bible that... Most people who would say they believe the entirety of the New Testament don't practice. It's that one and greet each other with a holy kiss. Those are the two I can think of. I'm thinking there's probably some others too. But most Christians today, most Christian women don't wear a head covering. Most Christians in general don't always, at least in America, greet each other with a holy kiss. But both of those things are commands. We need to wrestle with those issues. But today is not the day we're going to wrestle with these issues. Today is the day we're going to talk about Paul's mysterious and terrifying warning about the dangers of taking communion in an unworthy manner. So let's read the text, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and as I read it, pay special attention to the warning that Paul gives there towards the end, and then we'll come back and discuss it. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her head be covered. A man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So too, woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. 
In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pay, pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. Now, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together then, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for at the meal each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another is drunk? Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? (laughs) I do not praise you in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together and eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I will give instructions about other matters when I come. So just in case you missed it, and you may have, because honestly, 1 Corinthians 11 is just absolutely chock full of some really interesting passages. Some of them are head scratchers. Some of them are like, what do you really mean here, Paul? What's what's going on? Some of them are strange and in your face. But the one that we're going to zero in on for today, you can find in verses 27 through 32, when Paul says this, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup for whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, I think that's the body of Christ, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you and many have fallen asleep. Now, when you understand that fallen asleep is a biblical metaphor used to indicate death, then you understand how serious Paul is being here. He is saying that some in the Corinthian church have become weak, sick, and some have even died because of the way they handled the communion. Pause and let that sink in for just a moment. 
The New Testament is telling us here that if we partake of communion or the Lord's Supper or the breaking of the bread in an improper way on Sunday morning, then we are running the risk of weakness, sickness, or death. Now, when I first read that in the Bible many years ago, I was shocked, just to be honest with you, and I really thought... This is weird because I don't remember a pastor ever warning us about this on a Sunday morning. Maybe I just missed it. But it might surprise you to hear that communion is such a serious matter. But we should know that it was at the very center of Christian practice in the first few centuries of the church. I kind of believe the modern church takes the practice of communion far too lightly and probably far too infrequently. It was a dispute over um, the meaning of the communion, just to kind of give you an idea of how serious they can be in church history. It was a dispute over what exactly communion meant in England in the 1500s that caused Bloody Mary, or Queen Mary, the Catholic Queen of England, to order the deaths of almost 300 Protestants who had a different view of communion than did the Catholics. Now that 300, I think the exact number is like 288 or something like that, that included 55 women, four children, and the more, more than two dozen church leaders and pastors, all of them executed by the state because they had a different view of communion. What was the exact nature of their view? Well, let's go to Bishop J.C. Ryle, who was a British bishop in the 1800s, and this is what he says. The doctrine in question was the real presence of the body and blood of Christ in the consecrated elements of bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. Did they or did they not believe that the body and blood of Christ were really, that is, corporally, literally, locally, and materially present under the forms of bread and wine after the words of consecration were pronounced? Did they or did they not believe that the real body of Christ, which was born of the Virgin Mary, was present on the so-called Altar as soon as the mystical words had passed the lips of the priest. Did they believe that or not? That was the simple question. If they did not believe it and admit it, they were burned. So, eventually, we'll probably discuss that. Catholics, many Catholics at least, believe that when the Eucharist is taken or when communion is taken, that after the priest pronounces the blessing on the elements, the bread and the wine, that they literally, physically, literally, I guess is the best word, turn into the body and blood of Jesus. Uh, Protestants have a different view, to say the least, and we'll talk about that. But the good news is Protestants and Catholics don't um, have these kind of violent disagreements. Catholics don't kill Protestants over communion disagreements anymore, but the above struggle does demonstrate that communion is not merely a quarterly snack of crackers and juice that that the church sometimes does. Rather, according to the Bible, it is a life-giving, gospel-proclaiming, faith-building, thankful heart-producing, Christ-focusing act that causes us to remember and proclaim that central truth of Christianity that the body of Jesus was broken instead of ours for sin, and the blood of Jesus was violently spilled out instead of ours for our sin. When we eat and drink 
the bread and fruit of the vine, we proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection and return together. It's a big deal. So the big question, though, is how can such a thing be dangerous? And I believe the answer to that question lies in the very importance of the act itself. If we don't realize that communion is really, really super important, far more important than we usually make it in the modern church, we're not going to understand this issue. Some churches treat communion as a light matter or a peripheral issue. The Bible doesn't. So listen again to Paul's instructions on this matter. This is verse 17. Now, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. Indeed, it's necessary that there be factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together, then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. It would appear that the central trouble in communion in the Corinthian church was related to disunity. Something was causing disunity. A lack of unity that was so profound that Paul is suggesting that they would be better off not having church on Sunday. He says that in verse 17. Kind of reminds you of Malachi 1.10 where God says, I wish that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. So what was the exact nature of the disunity in the Corinthian church? Apparently people were selfishly seeking to eat and drink. And that tells us the early church communion was more than a tiny cracker and a thimble full of juice. They were selfishly seeking to eat and drink and not allowing the whole church to eat and drink. Some were overeating and some were getting drunk which I think tells us they were using real wine, although it's a very controversial issue. Maybe we'll cover that one day. But some were overeating, some were getting drunk, and others were going hungry and thirsty. That's a bad scene. Verses 33 through 34 confirm that that's kind of what's going on. Paul says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. Thus, the purpose of communion was not necessarily to eat a full meal and receive nutritional sustenance. It was more of an act of worship and remembrance. But some people were taking the opportunity to pick out, and in doing so, were being unwelcoming, rude, inhospitable, and downright selfish. Modern Christians have a funny view of sin, don't we? Funny in the sense that it's not often very informed by biblical truth, but more by societal dictates and, you know, our own logic, I guess. We rightly realize the soul-endangering nature of sexual sin, but we consider things like greed and verbal abuse to be you know, somewhat lesser sins. But you read a passage like 1 Corinthians 6, which we did last week, and and it tells us that all of those sins, sexual sins, verbal abuse, slander, greed, swindling people, all of those things are soul-endangering and disqualifying from the kingdom of heaven. What about complaining? Well, we almost laugh it off, but... God sent a deadly judgment of fire against complaining Israelites in Numbers chapter 11. 
Likewise, the kind of pride and selfishness that characterized some of the Corinthians' practice of eating and drinking all of the food before others could eat seems fairly innocuous to us, you know, kind of rude and jerky, but it was deadly serious, literally deadly serious to the Lord. There's no place in the body of Christ for a me-first kind of selfishness. And that gets us to the antidote for this situation and the proper approach for communion, which was, according to Paul, uh, in verse 27 of chapter 11, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person then examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. So before communion happens, we've got to examine ourselves and reflect on the rest of the church, considering our place in the body of Christ. As members or body parts in the body, we're no more or less important than anyone else. We must honor them above ourselves, and we must put their needs ahead of our own, says the Bible. They must do the same for us. And when we are doing that in union... We become the beautiful, radiant, sweet-smelling body of Christ, lovingly caring for each other in a kind of unity that proclaims the gospel of Jesus to a lost and dying world. See John 17 when Jesus prayed that. So allow me to close this part of the podcast with a wonderful meditation that's going to push you a little bit from Pastor John Piper on this passage. We as humans consider a punishment of death from God or even sickness to be really incredibly harsh. That's primarily because of our perspective. It's because our understanding really only covers the 70 to 80 years of our lives as mortals on earth. Our Heavenly Father does not view time in this same limited, narrow lens. If we're saved by Jesus and adopted as His brother and a son of God, then we are eternal beings. Our mortal life on earth is like a finger snap. If in death or sickness God can spare us from worse things, And yes, there are many things worse than death for created beings who are saved to live in eternal bliss with God the Father. If in death or sickness God can save us from worse things, then it is gracious of him to do so. In this way, we can see that even discipline is love. So consider well and ponder Pastor Piper's words. He says, Sometimes death is a disciplinary deliverance to save us from condemnation. And he quotes 1 Corinthians 11 here, a number have died so that they will not be condemned along with the world. This is not the reason for every death of God's precious saints. Don't jump to the conclusion that your sickness or your death or somebody else's is owing to a trajectory of sinning that God must rescue you from. But suppose that this is indeed what happens. Is that encouraging? Will thinking about this help you die more peacefully and with greater faith and hope? My answer, says Piper, is that everything in the Bible is meant to help you die and to be encouraging for your faith in the light of truth. How then would this truth strengthen us for a hope-filled death? It would happen like this. Is not a great threat to our peace the thought that we are sinners? Does not the thought that God is sovereign and could lift this sickness 
threaten us with fearful feelings that he must be against us? And how should we handle these fears when we know that we are indeed sinners and have corruption remaining in us? In those moments, we look for some encouragement from the Bible that God is willing to save believers who have sinned and are very imperfect. Yet we know that God is holy and hates sin, even sin committed by his children. We also know that God disciplines his children with sorrowful experiences, so says Hebrews 12.11. We are not among those who say God has nothing to do with the painful experiences of life, so we look for help and hope from God's utterly realistic word. And we find it here in 1 Corinthians 11.32 that even the death of saints, even the death of saints which is discipline and judgment, is not condemnation, but salvation. God is taking this sinning saint because he loves him so much, he will not let him go on in sin. This is our solid encouragement, says Piper. What it says to all of us is this, we do not need to be certain whether the time of our death is owing to our sinning or to the devil's cruelty, as it says in Revelation 2.10, or to God's otherwise purposes, What we need is the deep assurance that even if my dying is owing to my own folly and sin, I can rest peacefully in the love of God. At such a moment, these words will be precious beyond measure. We are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned. And he signs off saying, learning to die with you all, Pastor John. I tell you, (laughs) that's, that's really challenging. And it should cause some fear to rise up in us. And you say, wait a minute, fear? That doesn't sound good. Actually, it's great. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we should fear sinning. And if this passage puts a little fear of God, or a lot, into me and into you, well, that's good news and helpful. And today has accomplished its goal. So lay, let, let us, my friends, walk in the fear of the Lord and thus walk in the wisdom that comes from heaven. Now let's read Exodus chapter 7, verse 1. The Lord answered Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother will be your prophet. You must say whatever I command you, then Aaron your brother must declare it to Pharaoh so that he will let the Israelites go from this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh will not listen to you, but I will put my hand into Egypt and bring the military divisions of my people, the Israelites, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. So Moses and Aaron did this. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh tells you, perform a miracle, tell Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh. It will become a servant serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and did just as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a serpent. But then Pharaoh called the wise men and sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt, and they also did the same thing by their occult practices. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a serpent. But Aaron's staff swallowed their staffs. However, Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. When you see him walking out to the water, stand ready to meet him by the bank of the Nile. Take in your hand the staff that turned into a snake. Tell him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to tell you, Let my people go, so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But so far you have not listened. This is what the Lord says, Here is how you will know that I am the Lord. Watch. I am about to strike the water in the Nile with the staff in my hand, and it will turn to blood. The fish in the Nile will die, the river will stink, and the Egyptians will be unable to drink water from it. So the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, the canals, the ponds, and all the water reservoirs, and they will become blood. There will be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in wooden and stone containers. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and his officials, he raised the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad the Egyptians could not drink water from it. There was blood throughout the land of Egypt. But... The magicians of Egypt did the same thing by their occult practices, so Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned around, went into his palace, and didn't take even this to heart. All the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink, because they could not drink the water from the river. Seven days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Job chapter 24 Why does the Almighty not reserve times for judgment? Why do those who know Him never see His days? The wicked displace boundary markers. They steal a flock and provide pasture for it. They drive away the widows, the donkeys owned by the fatherless and take the widow's ox as collateral. They push the needy off the road. The poor of the land are forced into hiding. Like wild donkeys in the wilderness, the poor go out to their task of foraging for food. The desert provides nourishment for their children. They gather their fodder in the field and glean the vineyards of the wicked. Without clothing they spend the night naked, having no covering against the cold. Drenched by mountain rains, they huddle against the rock, shelterless. The fatherless infant is snatched from the breast. The nursing child of the poor is seized as collateral. Without clothing they wander about naked. They carry sheaves but go hungry. They crush olives in their presses. They tread the wine presses but clothe thirsty. From the city men groan. The mortally wounded cry for help, yet God pays no attention to this crime. The wicked are those who rebel against the light. They do not recognize its ways or stay on its paths. The murderer rises at dawn to kill the poor and needy, and by night he becomes a thief. The adulterer's eyes watch for twilight, thinking, no eye will see me, and he covers his face. In the dark they break into houses. By day they lock themselves in, never experiencing the light. For the morning is like darkness to them. Surely they are familiar with the terrors of darkness. They float on the surface of the water. Their section of the land is cursed so that they never go to their vineyards. As dry ground and heat snatch away the melted snow, so Sheol steals those who have sinned. The womb forgets them. Worms feed on them. They are remembered no more. So injustice is broken like a tree. 
They prey on the childless woman who is unable to conceive, and do not deal kindly with the widow. Yet God drags away the mighty by his power. When he rises up, they have no assurance of life. He gives them a sense of security so they can rely on it, but his eyes watch over their ways. They are exalted for a moment, then gone. They are brought low and shrivel up like everything else. They wither like heads of grain. If this is not true, then who can prove me a liar and show that my speech is worthless? Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed seventy-two others, and he sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself was about to go. He told them, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Don't carry a money bag, traveling bag, or sandals. Don't greet anyone along the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this household. If a person of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, he will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they offer, for the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't move from house to house. When you enter any town and they welcome you, eat the things set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, The kingdom of God has come near you. When you enter any town and they don't welcome you, go out into its streets and say, We are wiping off even the dust of our, your town that clings to our feet as a witness against you. Know this for certain. The kingdom of God has come near, and I tell you on that day it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. And whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. The seventy-two returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he said to them, I watch Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I've given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing at all will harm you. However, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and re revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. Then turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see the things you see, but didn't see them, to hear the things you hear, but didn't hear them. Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he asked him. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. 
do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I will reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, Go and do the same. While they were traveling, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary, who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, and she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So please tell her to give me a hand. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice, and it will not be taken from her. Amen. And may we have a heart like Mary of Bethany, sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his word and following it. God bless you, my friends, and Godspeed.